And sometime after the 6th century, the church designated these four Sundays before Christmas Advent. And the idea is that Advent is a time of waiting, where we reflect upon, as we've been saying, we reflect upon what it must have been like to wait to wait for God's promises to come true, that a Messiah would come, that Emmanuel, God with us, was going to come and was going to rescue and was going to save and was going to do away with sin and death and oppression and injustice and all all of these different factors. And so we sit in that moment and we come together as a church and we wait in that and we process that, ultimately culminating on Christmas Eve when we celebrate the fact that God keeps his promises and that the Messiah was born. As I said earlier, we are going to have a Christmas Eve service in Brickell this year. It's our first one, so you need to mark your calendars if you're in town and you're not going home to see family and join us. It's going to be wonderful. But we are seeking to place ourselves in not only a place of waiting and reflecting upon what it must have been like to wait for the promised Messiah, but also to reflect on our own waiting and what it means for us to wait, the things that we're waiting on in life. Not only the arrival of Jesus one day when he returns, but also all of those different things that we're processing and waiting for God to continue to unfold in our lives. And one of the things that we're going to see tonight in Isaiah 2 is that waiting is to be married with anticipation, that we're to have anticipation in our waiting. And when you read that, when you think about that, you're like, wait, wait a second. That seems, anticipation and waiting seem at, at odds. Unless, Carter, you mean anticipating my wait to be over, then yes, you are correct. I am anticipating my wait to be over. I am anticipating the wait for a good Christmas movie to be made because one hasn't been made since Elf in 2003. That's my opinion. What, I mean, can you name one? No. So we're waiting for that. I am waiting also for this pumpkin spice craze to be over because it's ridiculous. I saw in the store pumpkin spice pumpkin spice cheddar cheese. Like, this, come on, guys. So if you're, if you're helping that go forward, please stop. Um, we're all anticipating that to end. Maybe you're anticipating uh, a relationship to come that you've been waiting for, or a relationship to be reconciled that you've been waiting for. Maybe you're anticipating your wait for that job that you've always wanted, that you've been working so hard for to come to pass, or that promotion, or for school to finally be over. Maybe you're anticipating the wait for a child to be over or for clarity because you feel like you're in the dark or suffering or healing. See, we're all waiting for many different things. And if by anticipation, I mean the wait to be over, then you're like, amen, yeah, I want that to happen. I can anticipate my wait to be over. But tonight we're going to see that we are to anticipate not simply our wait to be over, but we're to bring anticipation into our waiting itself. And we're to anticipate what God is going to do through our waiting and ultimately at the end of our waiting. Whatever that thing is that we're looking for for God to do. The anticipation for God who is good to work good in his good timing. And that's a very different type of waiting. And Isaiah 2 reminds us that anticipation can be found in waiting by doing one thing, clinging to the promises of God. That when you cling to the promises of God, you're actually able to anticipate, not simply you're waiting to be over, but you're able to anticipate what God is going to do because you know he's going to do something good in his good timing through your waiting and in your waiting. I want to tell you a story uh, that's a true story, not inspired by true events. This is a true story, and it happened thousands and thousands of years ago. There was a king, and his name was Nebuchadnezzar. 
This is around the 6th century that he ruled Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar, he had a dream, and this dream haunted him. I mean, haunted him. He was tormented by this dream so much that, you know, he was having sleepless nights. He was having a hard time processing because his dream was just in his head. And so what he did is he called together all of his wise men. And he said, I want, I want all the wise men in Babylon to come into my chambers because I need to know why I'm having this dream and what this dream means. So they come into his chambers and he says to the wise men, listen, I had this dream and I need you to tell me what it means. And they said, okay, well then, king tell us what the dream was. And see, Nebuchadnezzar was wise. He knew that if he just told the wise men the dream, they were just going to interpret it in a positive light. So he said, no, no, I'm I'm not going to tell you the dream. I want you to tell me what my dream was and then interpret it. And so they're like, king, king, listen, bud, you need to tell us the dream and then we can, that's how this works. This is how these things were. He's and that's not going to happen. You're going to tell me because you're a wise man. This is what I pay you to do. So you're going to tell me what my dream was. And he says, and the wise men say, there's not a person, not only in Babylon, there's not a person in the whole world that can do that for you. So unless you tell us the dream, we got nothing for you. And he says, okay, well, I got something for you. It's a death sentence. So he takes all the wise men and he puts them up into a death sentence. And then Daniel hears of this. And Daniel hears that this has happened to the wise men and that the king has this dream and, and he's looking for somebody to tell him what the dream was and then interpret it. And Daniel says, I can do it. So he, he gets a meeting with the king. He comes before the king and he says, King Nebuchadnezzar, let me tell you something. I know your dream and I can interpret it. And the king's like a little skeptical. He's like, okay, I'll, no one else can, so might as well give it a try. So Daniel says, here's the dream. You had a dream of a great image, the image almost like a man, and it was towering, it was frightening, it was brilliant in how bright it was. And the image was made of gold from its head, and then silver, and bronze, and iron, and clay. Towering image. And then, as you noticed in the dream, there was a small stone. And the small stone was not cut by human hands. You could tell that it wasn't cut by human hands. It was small. But the small stone then struck this towering, frightening image of a man, and it broke it into pieces, and it fell apart. And then that small stone became a mountain that took over the entire world. And the king is like, that was my dream, and it's haunting me. What does it mean? And Daniel says, I'm going to tell you what the dream means, but you're not going to like it. Here's what it means. King, you're the head of gold on this towering image. You are the king of a great empire, the greatest of all empires, Babylon. And every other aspect of the image, the iron and the silver and the bronze and the clay, these are different empires from all over the world, different levels and different prestige. But that small stone is separate. And you're right, it's not cut by human hands because this small stone is another kingdom that is often overlooked. And it's a kingdom that you don't know about. It's the kingdom of God. And this small stone will strike all of the other kingdoms and break them apart because this small stone is not what you think. It is a great mountain that encompasses the whole world and will draw all nations and all people to itself. It is the supreme kingdom over all kingdoms. And as Daniel is telling this to King Nebuchadnezzar, the passage that he's most likely thinking about is the passage we read tonight, Isaiah 2 about the mountain of the Lord that is lifted high above all other mountains and will draw all nations to itself. 
and Isaiah writes this some hundred years earlier as a promise to the people of God in their waiting that the mountain of the Lord is coming. And it is higher than all other mountains, and it will draw all nations to itself. It is, as Daniel says, a small stone that is neglected and put aside, but it is so much more powerful than people give it credit for, and it is greater than any other kingdom in the world, even though those ones that look like they're made of gold. It is greater than those. So Isaiah is something, Isaiah is saying to the people of God and to us, I want you to understand that there's something great ahead. I want to explain to you what that is. He says in the very first verse, It shall come to pass in the latter days. Oftentimes this is used all throughout scripture, the word the latter days. And oftentimes you associate it with the end of time. Like at the end of time, at the end of history, this thing will happen. But it's not only used in that context. Oftentimes it is. But in this context, it means this will happen in the near future. And so actually you see the first time the word the latter days is used is in Genesis. And it's another prophecy. And it's The prophecy that in the latter days, sometime in the near future, a king will come from the line of Judah and he will establish a kingdom that will draw all nations and all people to himself. And so Isaiah is picking up that same use of that word and he's saying in the near future, in the latter days, something will happen and you can book it. You can put it down. You can write it. You can save the date. We don't know the exact date, but it's going to happen in the latter days. Here's what's going to happen. The mountain of the Lord the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. See, throughout the Old Testament, the the phrase, the house of the Lord, oftentimes refers to the tabernacle or the temple. It's the place where God and man come together. Man would come bring offerings and sacrifices because God dwelt there. And so there was this mutual, mysterious connection at the temple, the tabernacle. So you read this and you're like, okay, well, maybe the mountain is the temple. The temple will be established as the highest of all the mountains and all the people will come to the mountain uh, to bring their offerings and their sacrifices. That sounds like it could be the case, but it's not the case because when this is being written— the first temple was actually already in place. Isaiah writes, and the first temple was already there in Mount Moriah. And also, not only is the first temple there before it gets destroyed by none other than King Nebuchadnezzar, when Daniel talks to him later, not only is the temple already in place, but the temple is actually the smallest mountain in all of Jerusalem. If you've been to Jerusalem, you'll see this. The temple mount sits below the other mountains. The Mount of Olives, the famous mountain where Jesus ascends and he overlooks the city and he cries as he enters into the city on a donkey. That mountain looks over Mount Moriah where the temple is. And so it's not even the tallest mountain in the area of Jerusalem, let alone in the entire Middle East or the entire world. It's a very small mountain. And also the temple at the time that Isaiah's writing this and explaining this prophecy is it's already in place. So it's not, he's not talking about the temple. He's not saying that the temple will one day be established and all the nations will flow to it. So what or whom is he talking about? Verse 3 gives us more insight into the details of this mountain. He says, Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. So he says, here's the, here's the interesting thing about this mountain. People from all nations and all places in life will come to this mountain. Different cultures will mix. Different languages will mix. 
Different people with different struggles and suffering and brokenness and baggage will mix. Different social classes, different economic classes. They will all come to this mountain and they will mix because they will go up together. And not only people from all different places in life, culturally, men, women, young, old, but also people of different spiritual pursuits will leave behind different mountains that they used to ascend and will come to this mountain. And they will go up together. It's interesting throughout history, mountains and worship are tied together. Think about Mount Olympus, where Zeus and the other Greek gods dwelled. You think about Mount Kalash, where the god Shiva and the Buddhist, not god, but Buddha Demchok is said to reside. You think about Mount Zephon, where Baal, God in the Old Testament, lived. You think about Mount Chokchok, where Zoroastrians would come as their sacred shrine to ascend the mountain. You think, of course, about Mount Moriah, where the Jews would come uh, to meet God. And not only the Jews, but also Muslims hold that as a sacred site on that mountain as well. And so all over history, mountains and worship have been associated together. And you ascend the mountain to bring your offering to meet God. And Isaiah is saying here, there is a mountain that will come, in the latter days, that will be higher than all the other mountains. It will stand above Mount Olympus and Mount Kalash and Mount Chokchok and Mount Zephon and Mount Moriah. It will stand above all of them. It's the greatest of all mountains. And it offers passage to all people. And one of the things I love that it says is that this mountain will be established above all of the other hills. Why does he say that? Isaiah is saying that in comparison, all of these other mountains are but hills. Because this mountain that is coming is supreme. It is the greatest of all. It is established so far and above all other mountains that every other pursuit in life is but a hill in comparison. And here's the good news. You don't have to take a pilgrimage to go to this mountain. You don't have to be born into a certain people group to be able to go up to this mountain. You don't have to work really hard and strive really hard and follow the rules perfectly so that you can be accepted and and offered an opportunity to ascend the mountain. You just have to go up, Isaiah says. Or better yet, you just have to look up because the mountain is a person. And that person is Jesus Christ, as Isaiah writes thousands or hundreds of years before his birth. John 12, 32 says this, as Jesus says, and I... When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. See, this is what Isaiah sees and what he believes. And in the latter days, a mountain is coming that will be established above all other hills. All other pursuits, whether they be spiritual, whether they be personal, whatever other pursuit you have in life is but a hill in comparison to this mountain. It is coming. And Daniel says that this mountain is like a small stone. It's neglected. It's put aside. You have all these great kingdoms and endeavors that are gold and silver and bronze and iron, and then you look over and you see this small stone, but this small stone is much more powerful than all of those things, and will actually break apart those pursuits. Genesis tells us that in the latter days, a king will come from the line of Judah, and that king will establish a kingdom that will bring all people to himself. See, the mountain is a person, and this person is Jesus, and this is the person that Isaiah anticipates, This is the person that Daniel anticipates. This is the person that 
Genesis anticipates, and this is the one that in Advent we anticipate. And so in light of this, in light of this knowledge and this promise, here's what Isaiah says. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Notice that you don't come to the mountain out of compulsion or obligation. You're not forced. It's an opportunity. It's open to all people. Come, let us go up to the mountain. And the reason you go up is because you realize that this mountain is magnificent. It's beautiful. It is supreme. It is greater than every other pursuit and every other mountain that is but a hill in comparison. And when you go up to this mountain, you don't only go up to give like all other pursuits require of you, but you go up to receive. Look what it says in verse, the latter half of verse 3. You go up to this mountain, you go up and you receive that he may teach us his ways. The mountain, again, you can see there is a person. That he, the mountain, will teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. You see, every other mountain requires you to bring something. You need to bring your offerings, you need to bring your sacrifices, you need to bring your righteousness and your obedience, and you follow the rules perfectly, and you've done all the things correctly. And so now you can finally go to the mountain, and you can finally bring your offerings before this God so that he will be pleased with you. And the difference here is this mountain that stands far and above all other pursuits says, you, don't, you can't bring anything. So you just go up the mountain, you're just going to receive You're going to receive grace. You're going to receive forgiveness. You're going to receive an understanding of who this person is that welcomes you. See, Advent is about waiting. It's waiting for the small stone that was born. I love that imagery of Jesus being born. It's like a small stone neglected and put aside that becomes a mountain that welcomes all people to himself, that tears down all other pursuits because he's supreme over others. And this mountain, Jesus Christ, gave up his life for you and for me so that we might receive life in return as we ascend the mountain. And this was not done with the weapons of war. This was not done with hostility and with violence and with disunity and oppression. Notice what Isaiah says in verse 4. He says that he, the mountain, shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. See, spears and swords are turned into farming tools. There's no room for division. There's no room for hostility. War is not tolerated. Disunity is not tolerated. Because this is a place for all people. It's a place of unity. It's a place of love and grace and forgiveness as you ascend the mountain because the mountain is available to all people and you can't bring anything to please God. He's done everything for you. He's done what was necessary. And so he just asks you to come up to experience his grace and his forgiveness, to experience how he takes hate and he turns it into love, how he takes violence and he turns it into forgiveness, how he takes the weapons of war like spears and swords and he turns them into farming tools. I don't know about you, but that's a breath of fresh air. (laughs) That that's who our God is. That's what happens when you ascend the mountain, you find that. Jesus says again that I, when I'm lifted up, will draw all people to himself. And he draws us to himself by his sacrifice, does he not? As he's lifted up on the cross, 
As we look at him, we come and we find forgiveness of our brokenness and our sin and our shame and our guilt. And we are offered the gift of grace, the gospel, the good news that Jesus has done what we couldn't. And he invites us up. He invites us to come and to partake of his goodness and his blessings and his forgiveness. He doesn't ask us to bring anything. He just says, come up. And the world may treat him, and we, for many years of our lives, may treat him like a small stone, (laughs) insignificant, pushed to the side, but he is not. He is a small stone that will break apart every other mountain or image because he encompasses the whole world. Is this not what we see now, right? Where, where's the mountain of Christianity? Where is the place to go where you find the God of Christianity? Where is the people group? There isn't. It's the only religion in the world that does not have a place, does not have a certain people. It's for all people. Every country, every tongue, every different type of brokenness, you are welcome to come up and to ascend the mountain. And so the question is, where is this person Jesus Christ found? Where is this mountain? Isaiah tells us, he says in verse three, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, which is often as it uses a synonym for Zion. So what is Zion? It's the city of God. So where's the city of God? It's here. It's in the church where the people of God, God's citizens are gathered, his spiritual house, his home, his spiritual city. And what is contained here, he says, Isaiah says, truth, right? The law, the word of the Lord is contained in Zion. And what happens when it's contained here? It goes out from here. See, the church is comprised of people who have gone up to the mountain and have met Jesus Christ for who he is. But we don't stay up there. Do you notice that? When we go up to the mountain... We don't go up to never return. We go up, and Isaiah says that we're then sent out. From Zion shall go forth the law, and from Zion the word of the Lord, truth, will go out. You go up to the mountain, and then you go out. So what does that look like? It means that you live like Jesus. So here's what it looks like for you and for me. Ready? You love, you forgive, you share, you hope, you endure, you care, you sacrifice, you stand firm, you give, you act justly, you be merciful, self-controlled, gentle, kind, gracious, and that's only a little bit of a list. Are you, is that feeling daunting? I don't know. I read that. I was like, man, I do two of those okay. And the others, I'm like, man, that's going to be tough. But that's truth, right? That is, those are the ways of the mountain. Jesus Christ, that is who he is. And so when you go and you meet him and you find him, that's what you see grace and forgiveness and truth and mercy, generosity. So how do you ever begin to live like Jesus? How do you ever begin to see these things become a part of your life? How do you begin to walk in his ways, as Isaiah says? It's pretty simple. You go up to the mountain because at the mountain you learn. Look at verse 3 again. Come, let us go up to the mountain that he may teach us his ways. Who teaches us? Jesus Christ himself. As we ascend, as we go up, as we look up, that we may walk in his paths. You see, going up to the mountain changes you. So spending time with Jesus and prayer and reading his word and meditating and reflecting on who he is and his promises are not just a tack on our day to do the religious thing. It is the most important part of our day and our week. It should be. 
thinking and being vigilant about all of the other hills in life that we, we seek to make mountains as the thing that we're going to run after. We're to be vigilant against pushing those down because only one mountain is supposed to dominate our view. And yet it's easy for us, right, to say, I, I know that, but I really like these hills. So I'm going to make them into mountains. So we're to be vigilant that that's not the case. And if you're like me, that still feels really difficult to see those things that I read become true in my life from not making hills into mountains and spending time consistently as not a tack, as not a religious obligation, but as something I desire to do of reading God's word and prayer and trusting and holding on to the promises of God. And, but notice what verse 3 says again. Look at the language really specifically. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. See, we're in this together. That's how Isaiah writes it, right? He doesn't say, come, you go up to the mountain, that he may teach you his ways, that we, or that you may walk in his paths. Faith is not a solo project. He says, let us go up, that, we, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. You see, the word of the Lord comes out from the church. It comes out from Zion, and we're to go up together. We're to learn together. We're to listen together. We're to walk together. It's right there. It's very important that we understand that we are a citizen in God's kingdom, that when we go up the mountain, guess what happens? When you get up there and you meet Jesus Christ and you receive his forgiveness and you understand who he is, you look around and you realize you're not alone. There's a lot of other people around you. I mean, that's why we come here on Sunday night. You look around, there's a lot of other people on the mountain with you. And we're to be linked together. You see, there are no gated communities in God's city. Zero. I don't know if you're a fan of gated communities. They're not there. So you're going to have to get over that. It's one community. It's one people. It's one city. And we are linked together. We go up together. We learn together. We listen together. We walk together. Of course, you are to ascend the mountain daily. You are to seek to put God's word into practice in your life and understand his promises and see that become true in your own life. Of course, but... You're not to focus solely on yourself. Faith is not only about you. It's about us together. So you ascend the mountain weekly here on Sunday, and it's important. It's not just religious obligation. You feel, I'm a Christian. It's on my Facebook, so I need to come to Sunday every so often to worship because to, that's the right thing to do. No, no, no. We're a part of this together. We're family. This is God's city here. This is Zion. And we go up every Sunday together to the mountain of the Lord to receive his grace and his truth and his forgiveness together. See, we learn the ways. How do we learn the ways of Jesus Christ together? Well, the way that we do that here is we do it through community groups. We come together and we read God's word in small circles. We pray together. We listen to each other. It's by getting together with a friend over coffee or a drink after work and saying, hey, let's talk about God's promises, and let's really talk about what's going on in each other's lives. It's coming together on a Sunday night like we're doing here. How do we walk in the ways of the Lord together? Well, we, we serve together. We challenge each other. We hold each other accountable. We encourage each other. We lift each other up. We cry with each other when we're mourning, and we laugh with each other when 
there's joy. See, we walk together, we listen together, we learn together, because this is the way that God has designed it. Look at Isaiah says as he closes his passage in verse 5. He says, O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the world. House of Jacob is a phrase to incorporate all of Israel because it incorporates all 12 tribes. And so what Isaiah is saying is saying, O house of Jacob, O all people of God, O church, O Zion, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. And so what's beautiful about that is as we walk together, where we're supposed to walk, how we're supposed to walk is not hidden from it, from us. It's a light. It's very clear. It's not ambiguous. The truth is shining all around us. The ways of the king are not mysterious to us. Our king, the mountain, he turns the weapons of war and violence and oppression and disunity. He turns those weapons into farming tools. He takes hate and he makes it love. He takes disunity and he brings unity. He takes violence and he brings forgiveness. He is a God of grace and forgiveness and mercy and justice. And so it's not hidden from us. It's very clear. And as we come together and as we go up together, we learn his ways. And we learn together and we walk together and we encourage each other and we listen to each other and we learn from each other. That is what is very clear in this passage in the rest of Scripture. But in order to see that be true in our lives, we have to continue to go up together. We have to be linked together. We have to say, no, 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 we're Zion. And God has called us to go up and to learn and to listen and to walk in his light together. You see, Advent reminds us of those in the faith that waited with anticipation for when the promised Messiah would come. They had no control over when he would come, but they knew he was going to come because they knew that God always keeps his promises. Every time he keeps his promises. But now for us, the wait is over. The mountain has come. We have looked up and we have ascended in faith to know who he is and to trust in him. We know that he is not a small stone that's just to be disregarded, but he is the mountain that is established over all other hills. And so we can wait now with anticipation of how God is going to unfold his good plan in our lives. There are many things that we are waiting on. Some of the things we've talked about, and you know what they are for you. You are waiting on things. But because you know that God keeps his promises, he's always good, he's always faithful, and he works all things for your good, you can wait with anticipation. Not for your wait to simply be over, but you can wait knowing that he's going to work things out in his good timing. And as you wait, you can know that his plan for you is not unclear. What does he say here? He says that out of Zion shall go forth the law, shall go forth his truth. And so waiting is not passive. We don't wait passively. We go up together and we go out together as we wait on the Lord individually, as we wait on the Lord to do great things through his church, through his people, to bring more people to come to see and to find and to trust in the mountain that is established above all other mountains. See, God is using Zion, the church, to bring people to the mountain of God. That's how I was brought to the mountain. It was through the people of God. It was through the church. And that's what he's doing here. And so, here is our charge. Let us walk in the light of the Lord together, anticipating what God will do. Let's pray.